Welcome to Hope for the Heart. This is William Rogers. I'll be bringing the message today. And it's going to be a little bit different. I'm not going to be doing a, a study in prophecy. As you know, we have been looking through, or as you may know, we have been looking through the book of Revelation, taking it verse by verse going through. But we're going to pause today since this weekend is Easter. Uh, that's what the world calls it. And we are going to uh, look at the resurrection. In fact, the title of today's message is, Why a Resurrection? And I want to read to you a passage of Scripture. I know that this time of year, at least people at least think about, or a lot of people at least think about the resurrection. And so I want to take advantage of that and bring a message on the resurrection. And I will give this my, my passage for this today. It's Matthew 28. I want to read the first ten verses, and then I want to uh, talk about the resurrection. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, I'm in Matthew chapter 28. Beginning in verse 1, I will go to verse 10. The Word of God reads, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garments as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to report it to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the resurrection story, and it's found in Matthew uh, chapter 28. It's also found in John. I, I like the account found in John chapter 20. That's usually the one I favor, but this one sounded more like the typical story of what is told in church of, of the resurrection, the, the most popular one, I should say. And so I read it for, for today. But have you ever thought about the fact that during this season that Easter is even on the, the calendar, for example? Do, do people really acknowledge the... Uh, the resurrection, and do they associate resurrection with Easter, or do they associate things like shopping? Uh, I know that when I was growing up, uh, it was a big deal to get all dressed up and 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 go to uh, uh, have a big lunch. Uh, usually, my mother would fix a big lunch and and then have uh, people dress up for church. You started getting ready on Saturday, but you don't see a lot of that anymore. But in, in thinking about the resurrection today, I just want to give a simple uh, description of the resurrection and ask the question, why a, resurre a resurrection? Do people have confidence in a resurrection? Is there a resurrection? Does the world hope there's a resurrection, or does the world fear a resurrection? Well, I think uh, we can answer some of these questions today, but it's amazing in the midst of our busy lifestyles and the sinfulness of our culture, uh, the persistent uh, sinning, uh, staying away from church or, or ignoring God. It's amazing to me that the world in any way even acknowledges this time of year 
it being Easter. Uh, do they understand what they are seeing? Do they understand what this is? Is that why they do it or or what? But I don't know. But I do know this. There's a lot of confusion around this time of year. I was raised in a Catholic town. And actually now I'm living in a Catholic town. This is a city. Uh, this is uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And is known for Catholicism. Um, but Catholicism is the way a lot of people relate to Easter. Uh, they they look at Easter as, as part of Lent, 40 days of eating, which is Lent, eating no meat and supposedly expressing uh, penitence towards sin. And I suppose in most cases, hypocritically, since repentance of sin is not accomplished by some self-directed abstinence or some self-motivated plea towards God, it's hypocrisy uh, that is being seen when you look at Lent. And I, I hope that doesn't offend anyone, because let me explain. I think, in fact, at Lent, uh, that before Lent, people uh, tend to really pile up the sinning so that they can have more to uh, omit during Lent. In fact, that's, it's, it, I know that's true, because the city I grew up in, Mobile, Alabama, had Mardi Gras. And in some parts of the world, they celebrate the same kind of thing, except they call it carnival. In our country, we're familiar with Mardi Gras. In other words, uh, uh, Mardi Gras is, uh, is it's, it's two words. It comes together from the French. It means Tuesday and then fat, fat Tuesday. And it's the last day before Lent begins, 40 days of Lent. And you get, uh, in fact, it, it's symbolic of the fact that you, you get fat on that Tuesday. Now, it's carnival, it celebrates in other parts of the country, is like Mardi Gras. Uh, it's a time of sinning, uh, drunkenness, rioting, just having a, what a lot of people just call a lot of heavy fun and drinking and, uh, and stuff. And, and carnival uh, means, uh, carne means, we get that from meat. Uh, say the French word means meat and vow means uh, uh, farewell. And so carnival is really a farewell to meat, whereas Mardi Gras is, uh, is saying it's a little bit something different, it's Fat Tuesday. But basically it all means the same thing. You have this big party before you get to the spiritual high, which begins with Ash Wednesday. And I see so many people with an ash on their forehead here in this city or on the newscast. They'll put an ash on their forehead. Uh, I'd like to know before they put that ash on their forehead, uh, what did they do on Tuesday? Uh, but the footnote that I want to give you on that is that this is this is not related to Easter. I know that it seems to be. But as a footnote, Lent is not from the Bible. Now, I know that that probably would offend many, many people who have Catholic backgrounds, but hopefully they'll at least listen to this. There's no such thing in the Bible. It comes from a mystery uh, religions of the cults of Babylon, which was connected with uh, supposed killing a Baal and, and by a wild boar. And for 40 days and 40 nights, uh, the priestess and the followers of Baal mourned his death until supposedly he rose from the dead on the 40th day, and that is where Lent came from. And it uh, has been superimposed in Christianity to coincide with the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The word rather confuses the issue further by throwing into the already hashed up situation 
people in, in, in our culture throw in the things of eggs and rabbits and candy and rites of spring, new clothes, uh, hopes that the mix will solve their destiny. For most people, Easter is simply an event, a break in their sinful lifestyle. Uh, but for the Christian, really every day is a resurrection day. Now, we celebrate Easter in uh, anticipation of the uh, resurrection, uh, I mean, in looking at the resurrection. So we say that really Easter is the resurrection day, but so is every single Sunday. Every Sunday is an Easter or a resurrection day because we walk and talk with the living Lord Jesus Christ because he is living uh, He's living through us every day. We do not celebrate an event. We do not remember a dead Savior. We're not attracted by uh, painfully distorted crucifixes that so many people are quick to wear. We worship, we love, we live every day in the presence of a risen living Lord Jesus Christ. So every day, really, is an Easter celebration for us. Every day is a resurrection day. It doesn't mean it's wrong to focus on these in a special way. Absolutely not. I think it's right. I think it's it's good. While the world's attention is brought to Christ, we want to take every opportunity to speak of our Lord's resurrection. For that is ever and always our message on this day. And so I, that's what I want to do today. I want to look at the resurrection. And I have in the past dealt with the resurrection in so many different ways. Uh, in, in so many years of teaching and, uh, and being in churches, uh, I have, I've handled what proves the resurrection. I don't want to deal with that question today. I think that question has already been answered many times. The proof of the resurrection is so complete and uh, only a willfully unbelieving individual would choose to demand more information. In fact, one of the things that, that got me started on really wanting to teach the resurrection earlier in my ministry was uh, Josh McDowell. I met a friend of his that uh, actually became friends with, with me and my wife, Carol. And uh, he he really had an influence and an impact on my life. Uh, he shared with me the personal notes of uh, Josh McDowell, who was a, an apologist who actually was a lawyer. And he wanted he set out to disprove Christianity. And in the process, all his evidence that he gathered, and he was very good at gathering in uh, research, information, all that he had, he put together in a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And that is a powerful book. If you've never gotten that book, you need to get it. Because in the process of this research, Josh McDowell became a Christian. Uh, It was just overwhelming. God used every bit of that and turned his heart uh, to the resurrected Lord. And so today I want to ask something different. I want to ask why a resurrection or what does the resurrection actually prove? We, We know that Christ rose from the dead. It would be hard by way to argue the fact that there really was an empty tomb. 500 witnesses, uh, he did rise from the dead. The, the question might be, so what? What does that prove? The actual resurrection proves something. It must prove something. Is it valuable? Is it important? Is it a question we need to be asking? Well, I think so. I've got six very important reasons why the resurrection happened. And I want to just give you those rather quickly. I will do it in the time allotted. 
The first one is, it's important for his word. In other words, the truthfulness of his word. The, the Bible claims to be the word of God. We're talking about your Bible that you hold in your hand. It is the word of God. I know that sometimes we forget this. And I, I used to say all the time in our church, the Bible uh, speaks, God speaks. And so uh, if that is the case, then the, the Bible claims to speak the truth authoritatively, inerrantly. Uh, the claim is, is it justified? Perhaps the greatest of all proofs that it is the resurrection, it, it could be the very fact of, of several different verses. One I want to give you is Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter is preaching his first message after becoming filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, after the ascension of our Lord. And Peter stands up uh, to fulfill the calling of his apostleship, and he says this, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, that's Acts 2.22, Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved by, of God among you in miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you. You yourselves know uh, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God. You have taken, uh, taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And he indicates with the words and the populace of, of Christ, uh, listen to verse 24, whom God has raised, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. God raised him up. And then Peter immediately proceeds to explain the meaning of using Psalm 16 in the Old Testament. A few verses there, verse 25, for David speaks concerning him, and he picks up this prophecy of the Old Testament, and he quotes, and I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, and I, th th that I should not be moved. Therefore, uh, did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh shall also rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in Hades, neither wilt thou allow thy holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the path of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with countenance. Now, this is David. This is Peter quoting David. And David was speaking concerning him, the holy one, when he was speaking about this. David knew he wasn't talking of himself. Uh, Verse 27, that his soul would not be left in the waiting place, that his body would never see corruption, but rather he would go into the grave and find the path of life and go right back into the joyous presence of God. It is, it is a prophecy of resurrection, clearly, and it is understood to be a prophecy of the resurrection. But to whom does it apply, I think is, would be a question. We could ask this of Acts 2, 22. And, and through 29, and verse 29, Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and he is the sepulcher, is with us to this day. Number one, uh, it can't refer to David. He's still dead. But David, verse 30, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would rise up Christ, the Messiah, to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ. His soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did it see corruption. In other words, David was speaking of one who would come from his loins, the Messiah. That's, when you think about that, it's fascinating. Here, David is prophesying, knowing, uh, prophesying not only of his death, but of, uh, of his, someone coming through, the Holy One coming through his loins, and going through a resurrection. It's quite remarkable. Uh, he calls him the Holy One, and everyone knew the Holy One was Messiah. Even the demons of the day of that Christ walked on earth 
cried out and said, Art thou come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. So they all knew, even the demonic world knew Jesus was the Holy One. He was the predicted coming Messiah. So Psalm 16 then predicts the resurrection of the Messiah from the dead. Then when the Bible makes a prediction, and this is why it's, it's called it's important for his word or the trustworthiness of his word, if it doesn't come to pass what the Bible says, then the Bible is invalid so that the truthfulness of God's Word is dependent. I want you to think about that. The truthfulness of God's Word is dependent on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when he came out of the grave, the prophecy of Psalm 16 was vindicated and verified. In other words, it was proven to be true, and that stands as evidence for the truthfulness of Scripture. Now, Paul does the same kind of thing. It's not Peter this time, but Paul says in uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 30, God raised him up from the dead. And then Peter goes on, I mean, Paul goes on to say, and he was seen by many day, in many days by them who came up from, from him with him to Galilee, to Jerusalem, who are witnesses unto his people. And we declare unto you the glad tidings. Now watch this. How he promised which he made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled in other words, Paul says, this is fulfilled prophecy. And where is the promise? Verse 33, it is written in the second Psalm, Psalm 2, verse 7. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Not only was he begotten once in his incarnation, he was begotten secondly and manifested his sonship in his resurrection. So Psalm 2, 7 is fulfilled, is what he is saying. Isaiah 53 Isaiah 55, 3, to give him the sure mercies of David is a promise of the resurrection as well. For Isaiah 53 speaks of his death. Isaiah 55 of his inheritance, and therefore between his death and his inheritance, there must be a resurrection. And then in verse 35 of, of, of that, uh, refers to in Psalm 16, it's, it's, it's just, Thou shalt not allow thy holy one to see corruption. Uh, and so these are verses, they might seem a little bit random at first, but these are verses that typify all Old Testament prophecy. Uh, there were many verses that says that God would raise him and not leave him in the grave to suffer decay. It was always, it's interesting to me, that Christ was in the grave three days, and the Jewish tradition was that the, on the fourth day, the tradition said that the decay process would happen. But there's another verse that really comes to mind as I think about the resurrection and the truthfulness of God's Word. It's found in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus when walked alongside two disciples there. You remember that story? And he speaks to them and says to them, they are slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. <coughs> Excuse me. In other words, if you had understood the prophets, this is what Jesus says to those disciples. If you had understood the prophets, you would have understood the resurrection. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things, implied that then to enter into his glory? And he began with Moses and all the prophets and expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Can you imagine? I've always said this. I can't imagine what it was like to have been walking with him that day. He explained the death and the resurrection in every manner possible through the Old Testament. It was prophesied. And I know there are Dozens and dozens and dozens of verses that he went over that we wouldn't even think of or see, probably. 
Uh, but it was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was prophesied as well in a sense in John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus said, destroy this temple. In three days I will raise it up. Now that's a prophecy of the resurrection. And so the point of me giving you that is it speaks to the truthfulness of God's Word. All through God's Word we see the very fact of a resurrection and that it was promised and that it was it's said and predicted uh, for example, that in, in John chapter 2, verse 19, is, is it even tells us he spoke, uh, he, he was speaking of his the temple being raised in three days, not conflicting with what they thought that 46 years it built, took to build this temple, and how are you going to do it in three days? It even clarifies it in that narrative there. It says, he spoke of the temple of his body. Yet they never understood what he was saying. And when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples says, the word of God says, the disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. Now listen to this. If they believed the scriptures, even the word which Jesus had said, the Old Testament scripture, the New Testament scriptures predict the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well. So when he raises from the dead, then what does it prove? Well, it proves the truthfulness of God's Word. That's what we have to count on. It proves the fact that we can trust and depend on the very fact that what we hold in our hands is the inerrant Word of God. And I think there ought to be more in churches about the inerrancy of the Word of God. You can trust it in all the things that the Word of God predicted. That is the most marvelous thing that we have, yet it happened uh, because of the resurrection. If, if there was no resurrection, you could not trust the Word of God. So I want to move quickly. Number one, why a resurrection was important for His Word, the truthfulness. Number two, uh, it's important for deity. The resurrection proves the deity of the Son of God. In other words, it proves that Jesus is God. It proves the deity of Him. In fact, there's no greater proof in existence for the divine nature of Jesus than raising from rising from the dead. Remember, there are witnesses uh, in the Bible to the deity of Christ in many ways. Uh, there's, we, we see this. Uh, the demons, we've, we've already mentioned that. Mark chapter 5, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. The demons in Mark chapter 1, we know you are the Holy One. Even the demons affirm His deity. A man born blind. You remember the story in John chapter 9? who was given sight and affirmed the deity of Christ when he gave his testimony to the skeptical Jews who were uh, unconvinced because of the hardness of their own hearts. And he gives credit to Jesus doing the miracle. The disciples Peter, James, and John all acknowledged the deity of Christ. Thomas said, My Lord and my God, Nathaniel, thou art the Son of God. Matthew said, He is the God with us. Mark said, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Luke said and called him, He is the Son of God. And his close friends, people like Martha, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Martha, John the Baptist, and his cousin, and I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. A Roman soldier even said, truly this man is the Son of God. But there's even another one. The Father himself said, this is my beloved Son, and confirmed that in the resurrection, as Romans chapter 1 says, in fact, let me read to you in Romans chapter 1. I just want to turn there because I want to make sure that I actually read it correctly. In Romans chapter 1, it is a powerful, powerful thing. In, in verse 3, concerning his son who was born the descendant of David, according to the flesh. Verse 4, who was declared the son of God 
with power, listen to this, by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that is an affirmation to us. So you have to ask, why a resurrection? Well, it's important to verify, uh, in other words, give proof of the fact that Jesus was deity. Jesus actually is God. In fact, I remember, when I, as I say this, it reminds me of a sermon that I heard uh, in the church uh, after I became a Christian under Dr. Jerry Vines. And uh, he was up there preaching, and boy, he was, boy, he was really going at it. He was a great expository preacher. And I remember in the sermon, he said, he said, Jesus is God. And the minute he said that, there were two young men in the balcony that one of them stood up and screamed out, Jesus is not God. And I remember that he yelled back at the, at the Dr. Jerry Vines, and I remember he gave me goosebumps. It was a weird thing to happen in church. But boy, uh, the, Dr. Vines rebuked him and uh, demanded he sit down and in the name of Jesus Christ to, to sit down and, and be quiet. And boy, he did. He sat down and was quiet. But that, that declaring that Jesus is God was something that I will never forget. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus came as a prophet. The prophetic ministry of Christ, though largely fulfilled on earth prior to his death, needed to be authenticated by the resurrection. Why would we believe his word if he died like any other man and never came up from the grave when he had promised to rise? Why would we trust his word if his word couldn't be trusted? And how do we, how do we know it could be trusted anywhere else? The authentication of the prophetic office is dependent on him rising from the grave. If he didn't rise from the dead, he's a false prophet. And all his ministry is subject to question. You take the whole priestly office. The Bible says he came as a priest. And that as a priest, he is to intercede before God on the behalf of man. Because, listen to this, if he had not died and raised from the dead, he could not do this. How could he be a priest, as the writer of Hebrews says, after the order of Melchizedek, with an eternal unending priesthood? if he didn't raise from the dead. How can he be a priest forever, it says in Hebrews? How can he ever live to make intercession for us? He cannot fulfill the prophetic office because he can't authenticate his word. Well, he can because he was raised from the dead. Now, so the resurrection, and it's very important, proves the truthfulness of the word of God. It proves that Jesus is God and ascribes all the deity of Christ, of God to, to Christ. No man can do that. No man can do that. Only God can conquer death. Only God can prophesy the future and have it come to pass like this. So number three, not only is it important for his word, not only is it important for his deity, it's important for salvation. I guess you could say it like this, it completes salvation. The Bible tells us that God designed to save sinners, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, to seek the ones that were lost. Uh, he said this over and over again. He was going to go to the cross because sin demanded death. He would die, and that death would pay the price. He would be a sacrifice. He would save men from their sins. If he was going to the cross and died and stayed dead, how could he be our Savior? And so it, it's, it's, I don't even really know how to make the point of this, but it, the, the only thing is it's important for our salvation. I guess you could say it just completes it. If Christ was not raised, then our faith is in vain, is what Corinthians tells us. 
1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all died, even in so in Christ, all will be made alive. John 14, 19, he said, because I live, you shall live also. It's like it's a completeness to the salvation. Our eternal life is dependent then on the resurrection. If he can't rise and, and he has no life to give, then he can't give us any. But the fact that he does have eternal life, he has raised from the dead. And another thing to think about, having the Holy Spirit is dependent upon the resurrection. This is still all part of the salvation, uh, part of the outline. Having the Holy Spirit is dependent upon the resurrection. John fourteen twenty six, I think it is, and John 15, both. The Lord said, when I go back to heaven, I will send him the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came that, that men could preach with power. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came that they could be regenerated and placed into the body of Christ. We are born of the Spirit. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit came that we could be filled with His power. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit came that the world was convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment. The work of the Spirit is essential to salvation. We know that. If Christ doesn't rise, He doesn't ascend uh, into heaven, then He can't send the Spirit. If Christ doesn't rise, think about this. There's no forgiveness of sin which is all part of salvation. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our advocate in regard to our sin. And if he didn't rise, he isn't advocating for us. He isn't interceding for us. And there's no intercession on our behalf. But I believe this. I believe he intercedes for us. The Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. I believe he seeks the Father's best for us. And he can't do that if he's not alive. You know, I mean, th th when you think about this season, you think about just what it represents, even from the world's perspective. It's the, the, the foolishness to think that Satan has so distorted this. That in my neighborhood, I saw the other day, people hang little eggs on their trees. And they put little fake Easter bunnies, uh, cardboard rabbits in their yard saying is, well, it's cute for the children. Really? I mean, why is it cute to give them such a deception of this time when we ought to be celebrating the resurrection of our Lord? It is very real. It's important for Christianity. It's real to God. He sent His Son to die for this. He ever, listen to this, He ever lives to make intercession for us. I believe He seeks the Father's best. Can you imagine that? The resurrection then is the heart of, of the Christian faith. It means the truthfulness of God. It means the deity of the Son of God. It means the completeness of salvation. But number four, it's important for His church. The establishing of the church. This isn't an earthly organization. It's not a human club. It isn't some kind of religious exercise. It's not a satanic uh, counterfeit. The church, I don't know how to say it. The church is the church of Jesus Christ. It's the body of Christ. In fact, the Bible tells us several times that Christ is the head of the church. In fact, you remember in Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a very specific statement. I, Jesus says, that's Jesus speaking, will build my church and hell won't be able to hold it. In. If he had not risen, 
that never would have happened because the church was born at Pentecost when the Spirit came. And there would have been no Spirit. There would have been no regathering of the apostles. They would have remained scattered if there had not been a resurrection. You have to think about these things sometimes. And I think it's a good season to think about. We don't have to think about all that the world has to say about it. Think about what the Bible says about it. I know people say, well, it's not really Easter. You can't really say the word Easter. It's not right. But you can you can take what the world gives and, and give it the proper definition. <clears throat> Listen to this. Peter says he's he, Jesus is the living stone. And he became the head of the church. Ephesians 1 says that God raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion. Every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in those that is to come. And he's put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. In other words, the church, the body, its head, Christ was born in the resurrection, established in the resurrection. The apostles, they were transformed by scattered, fearful, uh, faithless doubters and cowards into a changing, world-changing apostles. Boy, the resurrection changed them. The Spirit changed them. The little band of followers, in addition to the apostles who had been so maligned and persecuted, grew to fill Jerusalem. The church grew day by day. They added thousands to the church. And their doctrine covered that city. And soon it turned, it was, I think Acts says, it turned the world upside down. Something had happened of a monumental consequence in history. And the church has since marched through time triumphant in the power of the risen Christ. That is a quote by David, I mean, uh, Donald, J., Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to this. He says, the church lives today despite its constantly being attacked. Constantly being corrupted, constantly up against counterfeiting uh, by others, which goes on all the time. It has fought off false teachers, false doctrine, false representation. It has fought off sin, worldliness, and it is still alive. It is still changing the world. The reason is because the resurrection power has sustained the church. That's a pretty good quote by Donald Gray Barnhouse. He goes on to say, because he lives, his church lives, and still lives. I mean, what regathered and scattered sheep, what could they do? What transformed them? Well, it took a little sect of followers of Jesus, made it worldwide reality, that has done more to uh, preserve truth, justice in all of this. But what did it? It's one event. It's the resurrection. Without the resurrection, none of this would have happened. There would be no church. So the import, it's important for the church because it established the church. The church got its beginning. Uh, its saints live with him because he arose. And This is not a human institution. This is not a man-made organization. We are a living church, and Christ is the head. What, a, what an amazing, amazing truth. But now I want to give you two more. I'll try to make those quick if I can get through them uh, because I've run way over time. Number one is uh, it, it, it is it's important for his judgment. Uh, he says, judgment he came to, the, the Father has given him all judgment is given into his hands. In John chapter 5, we see this, verse 22, verse 22. For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment into his Son. 
And then the third or the last thing, which is number six, and that is that it is important for us. It is the proof that we will be resurrected and we will have an eternity set for us. So the resurrection proves not only the truthfulness of God. It's not only important for that or important for the deity. It's not only important for salvation in his church and for judgment. It's important uh, for the eternal, I guess you could say, eternity of, of, for of the, his people, the Christians. For those who believe the resurrection proves that we too shall live. John fourteen nineteen and John eleven twenty five. Because I am the resurrection of life, therefore he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Because he rose, we have hope in the eternal life, and nothing can take that hope from us. What a glorious truth. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you will have a different Easter this year as you think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just think about it. Spend a little bit of time thinking about why would Satan want us to not think about it? What is it about the resurrection that is so different? The resurrection sets Christianity apart from all other religions. All of them. We have the only one that is a Savior that has an empty tomb. Everyone else's leaders are in their tombs. Think about that. Well, for now, this is William Rogers. You've been listening to Hope for the Heart. And as we go through this uh, holiday season, uh, for some it's a holiday season, I hope that you will give a little attention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today.